morning. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about you, but um, I kind of, I'm kind of hoping to see Jonathan have to take care of 50 kids by himself. Let's <laughs> see what that looks like. I don't know, I just, I just feel like that would be entertaining. Anybody else? Anybody? No? No. Okay. Okay. They would feel so sorry for you. <laughs> uh, I'm Jason. I'm uh, a, a pastor on the pastoral team here, which is a, a privilege. And um, now that I have the mic, I can do whatever I want. So I'm going to add one more announcement, um, which is super fantastic for you, right? You're like, oh, great. Another thing. Um, on February 9th, we're having our baptism ministry partnership class. Um, at the Chilliwack campus. And so if like God has been working in your heart and you've been thinking or contemplating, man, maybe I should be baptized. You know, like I, I, I love and trust Jesus and the next step is obedience. I, I, I think I should be baptized. Um, I would encourage you just to come to the class, explore what that looks like, um, find out what God is speaking to you. And, and if you've been coming regularly and been like, this, this, is, this is home, um, I would encourage you to come as well for the ministry partnership piece. God calls people to the church and he gifts them specifically to build into the church. And so um, it's just a way in which we talk about what Central's about, where we're going, what God has called us to and how you can participate in that. And so I would just encourage you, February 9th, um, 1.30 onwards, we have a class. And so I would encourage you to come to that. And if you can make it down, I know it's a bit quick, but we have a welcome lunch there for newcomers. You're welcome to join us for lunch and grab some food before we actually do the class. Um, so yeah, let's keep that in mind as we move forward. Um, so we are in uh, Revelation, still in chapter two. We're looking at the seven letters to seven churches um, that are kind of start this book of Revelation. And Jesus takes time, first he reveals himself to the Apostle John, and then he takes time to speak to each one of these churches along the way. And the, and the seven churches are not necessarily specific to these. It's intended as a um, as a, a general understanding of what the church ought to be. Yes, it is written to specific churches in specific times, but it wasn't exhaustive. But it's intended that we would read them and go, oh, that applies here. Here is where at Central, we need to heed the words of Christ. That's its intention. And so we're in uh, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12 uh, at the, uh, to the church of Pergamum. But before we get there, um, I, I was just reflecting as I was uh, preparing for this on a time in my life when I was in an interesting circumstance. Um, I was uh, at UBC taking a, uh, an English course on uh, presenting an argument, and so I decided that at UBC and my young self that the best thing to do was to argue for the historical reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, a little bit ambitious, to say the least. Um, at the same time, I was living at home, and I happened to be having a conversation with some Mormon men who came to my door one day on a Saturday morning. They knocked and said, would you have some time? And I said, Absolutely, I have time. Now, at this, t at this point, it wasn't particularly redemptive. It was more that I really loved arguing. So um, that was a thing. Hopefully, I've grown there. Um, so now I'm having these two conversations. And at the same time, my uh, dad's 
wife um, was from the South and was listening to some preachers from the South who were, um, who were using phrases like, there, there is a miracle in your mouth. All, all you need to do is speak it and have faith and God will make it happen. Like if, 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 if you can just believe enough God will give you the desires of your heart. And this kind of sat in the background of my home while we were having, you know, conversations around the dinner table. This, this voice is in the back. And so, so here I am having a, 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 a debate with my atheist professor. I'm having a debate with these Mormon men. And, and, and I'm listening to the background of this word of faith preacher. And the question is, which one was more damaging or potentially damaging to my faith? Which one undermines my belief in Christ most is the question. And and. And in this particular passage in Pergamum, Jesus goes squarely after the voices that are in our own midst and says, and, and says you, you need to be careful there. Yeah, there's lots of pressures on the outside and we need to be aware of them, but beware of that which is inside. So, so he kind of does it in the same format that he does with all of his letters uh, to the churches. He, he, he identifies himself in a particular way and then he uh, gives a commendation of the church, says this is where you're doing well. Um, in five out of the seven churches, he gives a condemnation. He says, look, this is where you are failing. And then he gives a command and a commitment. So that's kind of the, the, the pattern that he does throughout these letters. So we're just going to follow that. We're going to go verse by verse and see how he identifies himself, what he commends them for, what he condemns them for, what he uh, commands them to. So let's just start here in Revelation chapter 12, or Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. That's interesting um, in that it sounds a little bit different than the previous two introductions, right? So if, if you've been here for the weeks, the first one, God, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I am the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand. I'm sovereign over all things. I've, I've got this. In, in, in the church to Smyrna, he says, I am the first and the last. I died and came to life. Oh, that's, that's encouraging, right? But, but here we have the image of a sword and immediately the church in Pergamum would have been like, oh, you, you know what the sword means? The swords means judicial authority. Like he, he has the capacity to decide what is right and wrong and to execute judgment on someone. See, Pergamum was one of the cities in Rome that was granted the capacity to execute people. They could... They could, they, they could participate in executions. They had the right of the sword. 
And so culturally, as soon as this image of sword comes in, the Pergamum church goes, oh, this is, this is not so comforting. This is a little bit fear-filled. But it's not just a cultural reality. It's a biblical one that Jesus is pointing to. The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Previously, when John recognizes him as Lord in chapter 1, it talks about him shining like the sun and having these eyes that blaze and this sword that comes out of its mouth. The word that comes out of his mouth is like a sword. And this image comes from Hebrews chapter 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see here this two-edged sword is used in a manner to describe the word of God, the actions of God in the world, that when he speaks, he, di- he divides what is right and wrong. He doesn't just do it on a physical basis, but right down to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That the things that motivate you to do the, th- the, the, the activities that you do, th- those are the things that the word of God comes in as a sword to separate them. And, and nothing that, 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 that happens is outside of this view, outside of his view. So it's Christ who holds this word, this sword, in his hand to divide what is good, right, and beautiful from that which is wrong, distorted, and evil. And he's reminding the church of that. But you see, this letter was intended to be read completely through, and so the church at Pergamum would have read this and continued on, and they would have come to Revelation chapter 19, 13 to 15, which talks about Christ and his coming again. And it says, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Jesus himself is that dividing word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And the church would go, wait a second. Isn't that the same sword that Jesus talks about in our letter? And all all of a sudden, though, the weight of Christ's authority starts to level on this church, doesn't it? 
Before he's even talked about where they're, where, where they're good and what they need to improve and what his commands are, he's reminding them that I am the judicial authority in your life. The words that come out of my mouth are of absolute authority. And I, I guess I wonder, like when, when I was reading this and studying this, I wonder, is that the way that we approach the word of Christ? That when he says the world says this, but I say this, do we say, you know what? I am going to submit to that word because, because he has authority, because he is over all and he decides what is good, right, and beautiful. And, and maybe we need that reminder today. That before we think about what he has to commend us for, what he has to remind us of and command us in, we need to be reminded that he has authority. That he determines what is right, good, and beautiful. Is that the way that you approach his, his word? When you, when you pick it up and, and, and you read it, do you hear it? Or do you apply it? Do you submit your life to it even when it seems incredibly difficult? Jesus reminds the church that I have authority. But then he gives them a, com a commendation. Revelation 2.13 I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the day of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. If Smyrna was where Satan was doing his work and bringing pressure to the church, this is where Satan lives. If you, if you understand kind of where Pergamum sat, it's at kind of 15 miles off of the Aegean Sea and it, and it was like this, this town of um, philosophy and knowledge. It actually was um, a library. It had 200,000 scrolls in it. Pergamum is kind of where we get the term parchment from. And so it was, it was a place of ideas and trying to understand the world around it. And it sat at the base of this kind of conical hill that was a thousand feet tall. And on the top of this mountain sat three temples. First we had the emperor's temple. We had the temple to Zeus. And um, we also had the temple to the healing God at the top of this mountain. The healing God was, uh, his name was Asclepius. And um, you would go up to this temple and you would lay yourself down as a sick person in it and you would wait for the thousands of snakes that were in this place to come and slither over you for healing. 
I know some of us, that's uncomfortable, <laughs> right? Ugh. They were not poisonous. His symbol was that of a pole with a snake wrapped around it, which we actually still use today in the medical world. Some of the medical organizations use this, not in some sort of demonic kind of way that's kind of moved beyond, but this is where it originated from. And given the biblical context that Satan comes as a serpent, as a deceiver, is it no wonder that Jesus says, you live in the shadow, in the throne of Satan, and I'm commending you because all of that pressure, whether it's ideas or emperor worship or healing or Zeus, you are standing firm even to the point of death. I commend you for your faithfulness to me. I commend you for your capacity to stand at the walls of the faith and hold fast my name. To not give in on doctrinal truth that I am the only way for salvation. You have to rely on my death and life and resurrection. I commend you for that. Oh, I, I hope that we are a church who would be commended like that. Regardless of the cultural pressures for us to change our perspective on Christ, to change our soul allegiance to him who has authority, that we would stand firm at the gates and say, no way, even if it costs us our life. Jesus in his authority commends them for their faithfulness. Yet, he has things against them. Revelation 2, 14 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might f eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. See, the Ephesus church, he had one thing against them. In this church, he has a few. And it seems that what his condemnation of this church is that they are tolerating those who would hold to a teaching that was unfaithful to Christ and his gospel. It would start to twist them into thinking differently and placing other things on top of Christ himself. Now it seems a little bit convoluted because who's Balaam and who's Balak and maybe if you have read your Bible a lot and you've gone through kind of those reading plans, you've kind of come across it every once in a while and you're like, who is this, who is this guy? And some of you might remember, oh yeah, Balaam was the guy who got on a donkey and the donkey spoke to him. Oh yeah, okay, this is starting to make sense. So Balaam, for those of you who 
aren't familiar with the story, um, in Numbers chapter 22 to 24 is a, a prophet, kind of a, a sorcerer, kind of understands who God is, can communicate with God. And so um, the people of Israel have been redeemed, have been rescued from Egypt, and they've been uh, brought out by these 10 amazing miracles. And then the, 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 the sea is split and they come through and then they get these commands from God that God would make them holy and that he was going to make them a great nation and bring them to the land of Canaan. And so they come to the edge of the land of Canaan and the king there of Midian and Moab looks out and he, he's heard about what the God of Israel can do. So now he's worried. He's like, I, I, I need to get God to curse these people. So he calls Balaam. Come here, I need your help. So ba Balaam comes, Balak says, I will pay you to curse these people on God's behalf. Balaam says, I, I can't do that. I can only do what God tells me to do. And so he goes to God. God says, no, 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 you need to bless them. And so Balaam blesses the people of Israel. And Balak is like, no, 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 you don't understand. I paid you. This, is, this, this doesn't work. And this goes back th three times. Balaam gets paid. <laughs> blesses instead of curses, gets paid. And like Balak's like sending his hair on fire here, being like, no, 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 this is exactly the opposite of what I wanted you to do. And we're left at the end of chapter 24 thinking that Balaam has done this great thing. And then we read in the very next verse in Numbers 25, 1 to 3, says this. While Israel lived in Shittim, this land close to Midian there, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the, the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, so Israel yoked himself to Baal, another god. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Did he not just bless them three times? What we discover in Numbers 31, though, is that Balaam didn't leave just blessing them. So he went to Balak and he said, look, I cannot curse the people of Israel because I can only say what God wants me to. But here's what you do. You want God to curse them? Send your women and your young men. Have good relationships with them. Marry them. Enjoy life together. Infiltrate their culture. Draw them towards your God. And God himself will curse them. And so when Jesus is talking to the church of Pergamum, he's saying, you're tolerating that kind of teaching that there are people in your midst that are saying, look, just let, let's let people in. It's not a big deal. Yes, I, I know that, that there's a God up there that they worship, but we understand that Jesus, Jesus is the only God, the God in heaven, there's only one, and so that's not really a God. So it's okay to go to the celebrations 
and eat the meat sacrificed to their idols. It's not really a god. It's just, it's just stone. It's okay to participate in their trade guilds. Because it's not really God. And the, this church was tolerating that kind of teaching. That there would be a, 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 a twist that, that would lead the people in the church to start to value things above Christ. That their hearts would start to create idols. Yeah, you know what? It's actually not so bad. I need to, I need, I, I need to provide for my family. I need to put food on the table for my kids. So what's the, there's no God there anyway. I mean, we have a similar circumstance in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10 when Paul kind of addresses food sacrifice to idols in, in, in that church. And the same argument happens. It's only wood. So you can eat the, you can eat the food. God's a, and Paul says to the church, no, 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 you're missing the point. You're causing, you're leading people towards sin. Because there's certain people who won't understand that and who will start to worship in their hearts that God. So we abstain from it. Jesus' condemnation to this church is that they were tolerating this kind of teaching in their midst. That they were allowing that voice to have sway and leading to idolatry and moral corruption. See, it wasn't only idolatry, but it was also sexual immorality. They would start to compromise on the call of Christ. In Acts chapter 15, there was two things that the Gentile church was asked to abstain from. Meat sacrificed to idols, and sexual immorality. And this church, in a Gentile context, is compromising on both. Oh, they're strong at the wall, but they've let the Trojan horse in. The enemy is actually in its midst. And they tolerate it. This reality has actually been warned against consistently in Scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 2, 1-3, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed... They will exploit you with false words. 
Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This is not only a reality in the first century church. It's a reality in our church. That there are those among us, the voices that we allow into our homes through podcasts and YouTube with no discernment. We like the way that they talk or the things that they talk about or how it makes us feel. And we can so easily get caught into tolerating that which is actually bringing idolatry and moral compromise into our lives. In, 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 in the age of quality of content doesn't matter, but quantity matters, this becomes a huge issue See, it's not about whether you took 10 years to research something and then come out with a book. It's about how many books a year you can write. Or about can you do a podcast a week? Because if you can't do a podcast a week, then you're just going to become irrelevant. And in that, the tyranny of the immediate has sacrifices, doesn't it? I wonder how discerning we are about that which we allow into our homes and our hearts? Do we ask questions about the teaching we hear? First from this spot right here. So sorry, Jonathan. But right here, right now, are the words that are coming from my mouth, are they consistent with what Christ has revealed in his words? Do they, do they uphold the character and word of God? Do they unnecessarily distort it? Do we ask those kinds of questions? Do we ask, what, what is this preacher or this teacher making much of? Is it children? Or finances? Or health? Success? Or is it Jesus? Is it obedience to his word? It's seeking to make our lives conformed to that of Christ. Do we have a, a filter in place, a way to discern whether these voices are good and true and right? Or do we just let it wash over us? Jesus' condemnation to this church is that you tolerate voices that are twisting the truth and bringing idolatry. I wonder if we need to hear that today. Reminder 
to find ways to discern what is good, right, and beautiful. So then what is Jesus' command in a circumstance like that? Revelation 2, 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Oh, there's that sword again. Therefore, repent. Jesus' call is to turn from your thinking, to turn from the way that you act and come back towards me. Now first we need to recognize that this is actually a gracious thing that Christ is doing. In that in this idolatry, in this moral compromise, his gut reaction is not to wield the sword, but to remind of it and call for repentance. That is mercy and grace. I see where you are wrong. I see what you are doing that is false and leading away from me, and I'm calling you to turn back. See, Christ does not only hold all authority But oh, he holds out a hand of mercy and grace saying, come to me. Turn back to me. So we need to recognize that that is the disposition of Jesus that he patiently and graciously calls us back in our failings and our weakness to him. But this repentance is twofold. First, to those who are teaching falsely. Repent. Turn away from your falsehood. You know it. You know the words in my book that you are neglecting. You know where you are intentionally deceiving. You know the greed in your own heart. You know the moral compromise that you have. Repent. Turn to me and I am gracious. But it's also to those who tolerate that kind of teaching. Repent. Do not tolerate that kind of of teaching, because it will lead to the death of those around you. It will lead to idolatry and moral compromise, and Christ will come and will judge. Daryl Johnson, in his book on Revelation, when he comes to this passage, says, we learn from this message that tolerance is not a biblical virtue. Patience is, understanding is, civility is, graciousness is, mercy is, humility is, but not tolerance. Christ is not tolerant of sin. He is not tolerant of those who would lead people to sin. In fact, he talks very harshly about those who would deceive the little ones. See, it's the church's 
job to seek out and hold to the truth. It is actually a loving endeavor to hold fast to the truth and to root out that which is not true. I know in our cultural day, that's it's a bit anathema, and that tolerance is the, the milieu we live in, the life that we live in, that we need to tolerate everything and everyone and what they think. But that is not Christ's message. Repentance doesn't work in that space. Turn from the way that you think, from the way that you act towards me means that what you're doing is not good and right. What I am is right and good. So you need to turn from that, and in that is a loving endeavor. To call those around us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to righteousness in, in Christ. To reevaluate what they think how they approach the word of God. Now, this is, this is not a, a call to theological witch hunt. Like, if all of a sudden we're going to get up on our soapbox about, I don't know, Calvinism or Arminianism, we got a bit of a challenge. We're not here calling our brothers and sisters to the carpet because of a secondary theological perspective. Let's just be clear. That it, should in, it should inform those conversations that if Jesus decides what is right, good, and holy, that then he would have something to say in those and we should seek as much as possible to align our lives and thinking to that. And so when we have that discussion, let's hold the word of God above, above my opinion and, and, and my feelings about something. Yes, let's do that. But we need to have the courage to call out our brothers and sisters when they're thinking about Christ and his teaching is starting to build in them an idol. When you notice in their lives that their work is taking precedent over Christ's words. It is hateful not to say something, knowing that he will come and war against them. Just like he will bring the wrath of God Almighty to the nations with that same sword. When you start to see moral compromise in somebody's life, it is compassionate and gracious to bring the truth of God to bear. On their life. Remember, the church is not tolerant, but it is gracious, it's patient, it's humble, it's compassionate. So we hold the truth tightly and we invite warmly, like Christ did come, repent. This is what's at stake. That's the call of the church. But Christ's commitment then is of 
utter importance, isn't it? Because I don't, I don't know about you, but I sit here and think, oh, 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 that's hard. Like, I mean, in this age of con- quality or qu- quantity of content, how am I supposed to discern every voice and every, every podcast and everything that's said and every book that's written and how am I supposed to parse everything that comes in here? I mean, this, this is a lifelong endeavor. Oh, oh, yes, 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 it is. But then Christ's words should be, of comfort to us when he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. First, um, this, this um, statement, he who has an ear, let him hear, this is, um, this is akin to asking your child, do you hear me? Like, I, I don't know about you, but like, I've, there's been many occasions where I'm like walking downstairs, I gotta go get something from the garage or whatever the case is, I'm gone for 10 minutes. At the top of the stairs, I say, Lincoln, can you set the table? Mom's almost got dinner ready. And I go downstairs and then I come back up and Lincoln's still sitting on the chair and the table is empty. And my response is, did you hear me? Not, did you physically under, like, the, 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 that the vibrations that my voice box made travel through the air to your ear and vibrate your ear in such a way that your brain comprehended what I said. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, why isn't it done? Right? Did you hear me? Did you hear me? Church, did you hear? Did you hear him? Because for him who conquers, he will give a hidden manna. See, manna, which sustained the people of Israel in the desert, and then they took some of it and they put it in a jar and put it in the Ark of the Covenant to remind them of God's provision in the difficulty. To remind them that when they were, that they had nothing They had everything because God would provide. And then in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven. Eat of me like Israel did of the manna and you will not go hungry. See, for those who have ears to hear, he will give you what you need now, that this Jesus, who did not leave us in our sin, but made a way in which we could have life with God, says, come, have more of me. I will give you what you need to accomplish this. Come and seek me. Know me more. Understand me more. Love me more. Spend time with me, and I will give you what you need, and then I'll give you this stone, this entrance into heaven. You want to know how you accomplish this goal? Set your eyes on Christ and the things of earth will become so strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. 
want to know how you discern what is good, right, and true? Know the one who defines good, right, and true. And his commitment is, is that he will sustain you and grant you life eternal. Let's pray, and then we will spend some time in communion. Father, thank you for not leaving us as a church to uh, our own devices and our own thinking. God, thank you for speaking to us. Jesus, thank you for giving us hard words to contemplate in our hearts and our minds. Father, would you... um, would you give us ears to hear? And would we, would we not be hearers of your word only, but would we be doers as well? Father, would you give us wisdom and would you give us eyes and hearts and ears for Jesus, we pray. In your name, amen.